Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week, we're going to go back and do an episode that I promised a couple weeks ago because my sources finally came in. So this week is Wilhelm Schickard. So Wilhelm Schickard was born in 1592 in Herrenberg, which is near Tübingen in modern-day Germany. His father was Lucas Schickard, and his mother was Marguerite Gmelin, the daughter of a Lutheran pastor. The Schickard family originally came from Nassau County, but moved south in the middle of the 15th century. So Lucas Schickard's father, being Wilhelm's grandfather, was a sculptor and settled in Herrenberg, which is, again, about 30 kilometers south of Stuttgart. Lucas Schickard also trained to be a carpenter, and Wilhelm was brought up in Herrenberg, but at an early age won a scholarship to attend a monastery school in Bebenhausen, just north of Tübingen. After attending the monastery school in Bebenhausen, Wilhelm Schickard entered the University of Tübingen. He received a BA in 1609 and an MA in 1611, both of which were in theology and oriental languages. Even after receiving his MA, he continued to study these topics at Tübingen until 1613. While studying there, he also studied mathematics and astronomy under Michael Mastlin. In 1613, Shakar became a Lutheran minister and was assigned to churches in towns around Tübingen. In 1614, he was appointed deacon in Nürtingen, and he continued this work with the Lutheran church until 1619. During his time as a minister in the Lutheran church, he met Johannes Kepler, who had come to Tübingen to support his mother when she had been charged of witchcraft. If you don't know who Johannes Kepler is, I encourage you to look him up. He is an extremely important scientist of that time. Anyways, Kepler was working on his book, Harmony of the World, and was so impressed with Schickard that he asked him to do engravings and woodcuts for it, as well as help with calculating some of the tables. Apparently... Shikard had learned some of the wood and copper working skills that his other family members, including his father and grandfather, had obtained. In 1619, Shikard was appointed professor of Hebrew at the University of Tübingen and left his appointments in the Lutheran Church to pursue this opportunity. In addition to Hebrew, he also taught Aramaic and devised a way to make it easier for his students to learn Hebrew. I will be talking about these teaching methods a lot more in the next section. However, in addition to Hebrew and other Semitic studies, 
he had interests in astronomy, mathematics, and surveying. He made a conic projection for start maps in the Astroscopium, and his star maps of 1623 consisted of these cones cut along the meridian of a solstice with a pole at the center and apex of the cone. So he was actually making scientific contributions to astronomy and how to study the night sky. He also made many maps that were way more accurate than the maps of the local area previously made, and he made a calculating machine called the Reconneur in 1623. So this calculating machine has been preserved in manuscript sketches left by Chicard and Kepler. These were actually discovered in 1935 during research into Kepler's life, and 20 years later, scholars finally realized that they were sketches of the computer described by Chicard. Bruno von Freytag Loringhoff constructed the computer between 1957 and 1960 using the sketch and the descriptions in Chicard's letters. He then tested the range of calculations that were possible to try to ascertain exactly what purpose Chicard had in building the calculating machine. Von Freytag Loringhoff discovered that it worked well and was particularly suited to carrying out astronomical calculations which were necessary for the astronomers of the 17th century. We also have writings from Chicard to Kepler suggesting a mechanical means to calculate astronomical events. Anyways, outside of astronomy, in 1631, Chicard's old teacher, Michael Mastlin, died, and Chicard was appointed to his position as the chair of mathematics and astronomy at the University of Tübingen. He previously taught on many subjects, and so even in this position, he continued to lecture on architecture, fortification, hydraulics, and obviously math and astronomy. He also undertook land surveying of the Duchy of Württemberg, which involved the first use of Willebrord Snell's triangulation method in geodesic measurements. He published Ephemeris Lunaris in 1631, which helped astronomers track the position of the moon at any point in time. However, the Thirty Years' War from, that lasted from 1618 to 1648 changed the latter part of Chicard's life. In 1634, the Catholic army defeated the Protestant army and occupied Tübingen. However, the Catholic occupation was not the only challenge that people faced in the Tübingen area. The Catholic army also brought the bubonic plague. So over the next year, Chicard's wife and all of his children died from the plague. And then Chicard himself died in October of 1635. Chicard is remembered today in the Wilhelm Chicard Institute for Informatique at the University of Tübingen and the Wilhelm Chicard Schule in Tübingen. This is just a brief history of a hugely prolific scholar. There are many works on his astronomical, mathematical, and cartographic work, 
but be aware that most of these works are in German. With that, let's take a quick break and we will dig into Shikard's work on mostly Hebrew, but also interpretation of the Old Testament. <laughs> Welcome back. So this is going to be a very language-oriented episode. Shikard clearly had some theological convictions because he worked in the Lutheran Church, but less of his academic writing is about the Old Testament. What he does discuss is the Hebrew language, how to teach it, and how to understand it. So I want to start with his methods for teaching the Hebrew language before moving to some of his ideas about the language itself, and how he implemented it. Keep in mind that he was a Semitic scholar, and he also wrote on Arabic and Syriac, as well as other languages like Turkish and Persian. I won't dive into those here, but the breadth of his knowledge and his ability to navigate these varied subjects at a deep level, super impressive. So let's look at his teaching methods for Hebrew. He wrote Methodist Lingua Sancta, which somewhat followed previous grammars of Hebrew, but its real key is that it has tables of grammatical rules. So the idea is that you can use these tables to understand the conjugation of verbs or the spelling of words. However, because these discuss rules for spelling, conjugation, and a little bit about sentence structure, Shikard expects students to use the textbook with a lexicon. So you can use these tables of rules to understand the form or order of the words, but to translate it, you need an actual dictionary of Hebrew to know the words. Well, this is just the start of Shikard's work in language education. He also created the Rota Hebrea. This is super interesting. And I would love if someone would recreate it. I have a book with some pictures of it, but I have never seen it in real life. Rota Hebrea is a language learning device. It has two wheels that spin on top of each other. So you turn the wheels and it displays the conjugation of the words. So think of something in English. For example, you have a disc with the word play on it. On another disc, you have ed ing, and er. So you can turn the disc and line up play with er, and you have the nominal form player. Or you could turn the disc again and line up play with ed, and you have the past tense played. This is a simple explanation, but Shikard's version is much more complicated and can provide a ton more forms. Shikard also tried other visual explanations of these forms, specifically as a tree with roots. Again, think of the base plate with then roots extending out in all directions. This was actually a circle with the word in the middle. With roots extending out in all directions, 
with the variations on that form, like played, plays, player, playing, etc. So far, he has written a lot of language work that seems really mechanical. A set of tables with linguistic rules, a wheel for conjugation forms, and a tree diagram. But this isn't all that he wrote for his students. After teaching for some time, Chicard realized the shortcomings of his earlier grammar and the shortcomings of many other grammars that were out at the time. So, he wrote the Horologium Hebraeum. This is a grammar with a lexicon actually attached to it. So this time the students can look up the meaning of the word within the book itself. However, there is a bigger invention here. If the first word of the title Horologium sounds like the word ours to you, you have some good instincts. The Hebrew textbook had 24 chapters and each chapter was to take one hour for the students to learn. Now before anyone panics, he was not intending for students to pick up the entire Hebrew language in a single 24-hour period. He imagined it to be used for about 12 days. The first half of the grammar is rules, and the second half is applying these rules to specific situations. Again, we can see that scientific side of Chicard coming out. Well, let's get out of the linguistic teaching methods. I think they're super interesting, but I want to get into how he uses Hebrew for the Old Testament. Chicard's main goal was to teach Hebrew so you could read your Bible, and he believed that this was a distinct advantage for students to know their language well they will know their Hebrew Bible well. So, one work that he published was Alphabetum Davidicum, which contains an exegesis of Psalm 25. In this work, he uses Greek, Syriac, and Chaldean to understand difficult words and then translate the Hebrew into Latin and German and show why he thinks some of the previous translators are wrong. Now, in his translation of the passage, he goes word for word, noting the occurrences of each term in the Old Testament and specific phrases that are occurring throughout the Old Testament. This is super deep work here, but he doesn't just stop at noting word occurrences and translating. Chicard's goal of learning the language is to interpret the text. So he branches out a little from the psalm itself and begins touching on linguistic peculiarities. One is the word for enemies. In Psalm 25.2, David says, quote, Do not let my enemies exult over me. End quote. Well, the word for enemies in Hebrew is oyev. And Shikard asserts that this is the root of the name Job which in Hebrew is pronounced Yov. He claims that a slight metathesis, where the O sound moves from Oyev to Yov, to the first syllable after the Yod, makes the name Yob. The reason that he wants this to be the origin of the name Job is because Job was an enemy of the wicked, in Shikard's mind. Just a side note, nobody is arguing that the Hebrew name Job comes from Oyev that I've heard, at least not currently, 
and I also think that this connection with Psalm 25 is a bit strange, since the enemies in this psalm are actually wicked people against the righteous, not righteous people standing up against the wicked. Anyhow, another point that he makes is that the Hebrew verbs alatz, alas, and alaz all mean something around joy or shouting. And borrowing from the rabbis, Shakar claims that the origin of these words is the sound of joy. This is something like saying they derive from the onomatopoeia. So when the author writes this word, a reader in the original language can almost hear the shouts of joy a lots, a lots, even though they are standard verbs and conjugate like all the other Hebrew verbs. So Shakar makes many more observations and comments on this work, but then ends it after about one-third of the 22 verses in that chapter have been discussed. I don't know whether he got bored or decided that was enough for his readers to do the rest on their own, but he never fully brings all these insights together for a full reading of the psalm. So other works that he did, Shakard also wrote about monetary values in the Old Testament. But that's a little in the weeds for this podcast, which honestly has already been in the weeds. I want to talk about his work, Denomine Tetragamato. If you have a sense of your Latin, you will know that this is about the Tetragrammaton name. That is to say, the divine name Yahweh. The reason it is called Tetragrammaton is because it has four letters, yod He, vav He. In addition, it is traditionally not pronounced in Jewish circles. I've actually heard a presentation recently that is on a dissertation arguing the divine name was pronounced in certain Jewish circles, even into the first few centuries CE, but it was pretty limited. Many scholars believe that it was almost entirely unpronounced in the Greco-Roman era by Jewish communities. So you can just call it the four letters, tetragrammaton in Latin, or sometimes the name, which is pronounced Hashem in Hebrew, because you don't really want to vocalize it if you're an ancient Jewish person. Well, this concern for ancient Jews did not carry over to Christian circles. Tons of scholars have tried to figure out how to pronounce the name and where it comes from. During Shakard's time, the most common form was Yehovah, which came from the great theologian Martin Luther, among many others. If this name sounds familiar, you might be thinking of Jehovah's Witnesses. This is an anglicized version of that pronunciation. They are using what most scholars consider an incorrect and outdated pronunciation. The syllables and derivation of that form don't really fit with what we know about Hebrew word formation. So most scholars would say Jehovah or Yehovah is incorrect at this time. More importantly, though, Shikard also disagreed with this form, and so did the Buxdorfs. If you remember the father-son Hebrew pair from the old episodes of Richard Simon and Capellus, so Shikard was among their crew in saying Yehovah incorrect. 
Shikard vocalizes the name as Yahweh. He does this from a Hebrew linguistic argument, but also follows Mammonitus' argument that the divine name cannot be broken down. That is, other words have constituent parts and etymologies, like his origin of the name Job from enemy, or words for joy from the sounds of joy. Mammonitus claimed that all names have a derivative, but the divine name does not. He makes this theological by stating God himself has no origin, so the divine name does not have an origin, and probably comes from before time began and before humans could think about origins in time. Shikard agrees with this sentiment. Nonetheless, Shikard tries to suggest a derivation of Yahweh. He suggests that it could come from the verb hayah, which is to be, and this is in line with the statement in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. However, as Shikard noted, and many have noticed since, the form of the word doesn't fit any conjugation particularly well. To return to our word for play analogy, this is like saying the word play egg derives from the verb play. That might be true, but the ending eg isn't one that works in English. That isn't a standard conjugation. Hayah might be the origin of Yahweh, but Yahweh isn't a normal conjugation of that verb. This is where Shikard defers to Mammonitis' assertion that it has no origin just like God, even though it is something related to being or existence. Well, here's where language takes a hard turn for Shikard. He begins to get into Kabbalist ideas. Jewish Kabbalist circles do not analyze the divine name out of reverence, but that doesn't stop Shikard from going for it. First, he claims that if you arrange the four letters into all possible sequences, you get 12 options. If you've been paying attention, you will know the importance of the number 12. That is the number of tribes of Israel, the disciples of Jesus, and a whole host of other important elements in the Bible. He also claims that the numerical values of the letters add up to 10 and signify totality. He claims that the mystery of the Trinity is found within the letters. He claims Yod is the smallest letter that all other letters are built upon. Side note, graphically this makes sense. If you look up Yod, you'll see it's a little line almost like an apostrophe. So other letters would incorporate this apostrophe into much larger forms. So Yod is what all other letters are built on. He is for Hayah, which is being and is again repeated at the end of the word. And then Vav is the word for and. I think I talked about that in the last episode. So you have Yod, origin, being, and being. If you spell the word Yod, He, Vav, He. The first is the father, the second and last are the son, the haze, and the spirit is and, which is to say that the Holy Spirit is the divine connection between the persons of the Trinity, yod, he, vav, he. 
If you are familiar with Kabbalism or any kind of mystical Judaism, this sort of interpretation is somewhat common. Shakar wrote a lot more about Hebrew and Hebrew words in the Old Testament, like identifying the stars that are named in some of the Old Testament texts. But these examples give a sense of how he was analyzing the language. He was extremely interested in learning the Hebrew language and in teaching the Hebrew language. He also wanted to use the linguistic knowledge to interpret the text more closely. However, his scientific method of learning and applying the language frequently turned into numerology methods or making etymological connection between words that some would find questionable. As someone with a mind for math and science and pattern recognition, these arguments may make some sense. Why wouldn't there be a connection between Oyev and Job? Why wouldn't the divine name have numerical significance? So this is where I will leave us today. There are a ton of other works by Shikard on Hebrew language, as well as other scientific instruments and discoveries, and his works on other languages and anthropology. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you are listening, and also come back in two weeks for William Berriman, which we will actually be getting to this time. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening. <laughs>